Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a moment, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's. But first, I had the distinct privilege recently of sitting down with one of the world's great theologians, Robert Jensen. He's the author of too many books to name. Most recently, A Theology in Outline, Can These Bones Live? We're also joined by Adam Idle, who was responsible for transcribing the lectures that became this book and is a close friend of Professor Jensen. Adam is professor of ethics at Yale Divinity School and a friend of mine. I hope you enjoy the conversation half as much as I did. I am here at the home in Princeton, New Jersey of Dr. Robert Jensen. And I'm also with uh, student and friend and colleague of his, Adam Idle, who's also a friend of mine, and you helped transcribe a one of uh, Professor Jensen's books, A Brief Theology and Outline, right, Adam? Yeah, that's right. How did you two guys meet? I don't remember. How did we meet? Oh, I remember. I was an MDiv student. I'd encountered your books and essays in a couple of courses, and then one day a professor told me you live just down the street. And, uh, yeah, I just decided I was going to find a way to meet you somehow. And I can't remember. I think I, I brought you a couple things. I, I, um, an envelope. You, bri- you bribed him? I, <laughs> I, I brought a large package of unmarked bills. No, I, uh, no, I, I think I brought a couple of essays that I'd written that had dealt with your work and it asked maybe if, if, um, you'd read them and if we could talk sometime. And, um, the next day I got an email, um, asking, uh, me to come over at 2 p.m., which is about what time it is right now. That's the time people come here is 2 p.m. <laughs> That's the time. That, That's this the is time. The, this, it is indeed that time right now. Uh, Professor Jensen, you wrote a book called Talking About God with Poppy a few years ago with your granddaughter, right? as I recall, right? With my granddaughter? It, it, yeah, where you had dialogues with your yeah. granddaughter. I love that book. Um, I did. Well, I think it's a great book. <laughs> Me too. She is incredibly, she was incredibly yeah, smart for age. Yeah. What um, what was your? Did you grow up in the church? I mean, it was your childhood. Oh, yeah. Were you raised? That, I was a pastor's kid. All right, there you go. PK is a fate worse than death, but that's how it works. <laughs> and where was that? Where did you grow up? Well, you're alienated from the community, or at least you used to be. Hmm. You think that's changed more now? I think it has. Yeah. And what were some high points as a as a kid of your own faith journey or development? I mean, do, do you have fond memories from Sunday school, church, things like that? Well, look, I grew up supposing I was going to be a minister. <laughs> wow. It was a family profession. My father, two of my uncles, my grandfather were all Lutheran clergy, except one was Methodist. So I just assumed that, and I went off to college. Where was that? Luther College in Decorah, Iowa. So you were a real pedigree. Now, the thing that happened there was it suddenly dawned on me that this faith claimed to be true. Hmm. That, hadn't, that question hadn't arisen. <laughs> and, 
If it could be true, it could also be false. Hmm. So that was the beginning of my theological reflection. And you, from there, you you went on to study pretty advanced levels of theology, and you wound up studying with Karl Barth, right? Well, I went on to I went to seminary, and then I went to grad school in Heidelberg, and my dissertation there was signed by the Doctor Vater, the Doctor Father. You didn't get to choose. Hmm. You, you hung around looking brilliant in seminars until the professor noticed you. said, well, I need a dissertation on this. You do it. So <laughs> I was assigned to write one in Karabar. Oh, wow. So after a while, we went up Blanche and I moved to, and our daughter moved to Basel where he was, and finished writing the dissertation there. What was Bart like? To, to What was it like getting to know him? What was his personality like? That depended. On? <laughs> well... He was open to students in an amazing fashion. This is the height of his fame as the world's most famous theologian, of which he was very much aware. <laughs> and, you know, high dignitaries of church and state would come and have to wait for an appointment. Meanwhile, a student like me just walked in and said, I'd like to work with you a little bit if that's okay. And they said, fine. However, if you crossed him, he took you seriously. Hmm. It was as if you were a bullman or somebody. And he had... No holds barred in slaying you in in in, in public debate. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, <that>, great. <laughs> uh, and you've you've also done you also did early work on Jonathan Edwards, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, what's your you did work on Edwards? Well, that's my wife. She had a degree in in intellectual history, American intellectual history, and she kept bugging me. <laughs> about the fact that I knew a whole lot about what went on in Berlin, let's say, in 925 or whatever date, and almost nothing about what went on down the street at Princeton or, or Yale. So one, one semester, I always had a seminar for, for seminary students in the evening. And one semester, I picked a selection of American turn of the 18th and 19th century theologians because I didn't know about anything about them. I found many admirable persons, and one I just fell in love with. So I worked on Edwards for years. Wow! I mean, so that your wife has a significant influence. That's a good. Sounds like a collegial marriage. <laughs> if she could influence you that way. Well, it's been a collegial marriage. I keep saying that if I were honest, I would list list us as co-authors of most of my work. <laughs> but she won't let me. That's great. She's Norwegian. <laughs> <laughs> Norwegians are self-deprecating people. <laughs> I, you've heard the joke about the Lutheran farmer that loved his wife so much he almost told her once. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you, you've had a, a long and distinguished career theologically. When you look at, the, at, at theology and the life of the church today, in the next century, what do you think is the thing, what is the central issue that if theologians who are doing their work in and for the church, if they miss it or they get it wrong, that it could be disastrous for the life of the church? Well, there are a couple of issues. One is the Western church is going to have to exist within a nihilistic culture. Mm. Now, there are two ways of going at that. One is to the so-called Benedictine option. You, you have tight residential communities that do their own thing and the pagan world outside sort of looks on. Or you can challenge it directly. The other issue is closely related. is whether the theology will give the proper weight, systematic 
intellectual, metaphysical weight to the narrative character of the Bible. So when you say the narrative character, you talk in the, I've just read your uh, brief theology and outline. You talk about the, the, the necessity of the church rethinking its metaphysics. Is that what you're getting at there about the narrative of the Bible? Yeah. Although I don't make a big fuss about it in that particular book. Where have you made the biggest fuss about it? Well, the concept of narrative as such. What I talk about in that book fundamentally is the way in which God lives together with us into the future. Hmm. What do you think over the years as you've been writing theology and teaching it and doing it for the life of the church, where, where has your mind changed the most? What, what's something that you think has, where you kind of, you saw a shift in your own thinking? You know, I've been asked that question a couple of times. I think that Peter Oakes, Jewish philosopher, mm-hmm. calls me a post-liberal. <laughs> See, I've gone through the whole routine of historical critical exegesis, hmm. which has so destroyed, really, the faithfulness of the Church, and without rejecting it, come out on the other side. Hmm. That happened sort of gradually through the latter part of my seminary and the first part of my time in Heidelberg. Hmm. And you and Adam have, have maintained uh, a friendship since, Adam, you left Princeton. You, you guys still keep in touch. Uh, what, do you, what do you guys talk about theologically? What... what, what animates the nature of your conversations. What are, you, uh, what are some of the most interesting things you guys have shared? Hmm. Adam, what do you think? Well, you know, over the last couple of years, you know, we, I, I, I've been in transition, so a lot of our time has just been spent catching up or talking about uh, the status of the book. But we, we began our conversations talking uh, about your work. Just I, I was interested to understand it better, but then gradually it evolved into... Um, uh, a little mini seminar, and actually, other people started coming actually, along. Adam, okay, and three other guys came to me one day and said, "You're retired. You have time. Would you be willing to read to, to meet with us to read stuff in Clark?" So I said, "Sure." We read our way we, many semesters. Actually, we began with the pre-Socratics, everything from my systematics to the, the history of Western metaphysics. Yeah, so we we spent a year. We began with the pre-Socratics, and I mean. We we could have spent ten years, but we spent a year reading um, through the history of metaphysical thought. So, um, I think we ended. Where did we end? We haven't had much chance to to talk about theology yeah. as such. That's it's, right. It's been this, this an outline of theology that has occupied us. <laughs> we've read Aquinas together. We've read Luther and Bart and um, gosh. So much more, and well, then in connection with the course that was really the basis for the the book, I mean, there there was Bonhoeffer, there was Hildegard of Bingen, there was uh, plenty of scripture. It's, 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 it's that book, a theology and outline. Can these bones live? That it was designed for undergraduates at Princeton University, and I wanted to give them a taste of Christian theology to see if they liked it. Did they like it? So many of them did. <laughs> That's proof. Proof is in the pudding, as they say. Pardon? The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Well, as they say, yeah. It, when I read when I read the book, it reminded me. One of my favorite books of yours is Story and Promise. I still recommend that to people because uh, I found it 
uh, I, I still find it fresh and helpful. And I think you, you get at the heart of the Christian faith without, uh, in, in a way that is very plain spoken and yet deep. Um, it, it, do you see any connection between those two books? Because it, it, in parts, it reminded me of Story and Promise. Well, look, there are sort of three, three goals that systematic theology that I've done. I think they're coherent with each other, although I couldn't prove it. <laughs> I bet you Adam could. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think so, yes. But they have different starting points. Story and Promise is about the narrative as a promise. Systematics starts with, it's hard to say where it starts. It starts from no place. <laughs> and the outline of theology starts with, a, with the question that the Lord builds to Ezekiel. Mm-hmm. Can these bones live? And takes Jesus of Nazareth as the Lord's own answer to his own question. Mm. Yes, they can. Mm. Death does not rule. Now, what's the connection? They all have different starting points. Mm -hmm. You can tell, I think, that they're by the same guy. Well, it says on the cover. (laughs) (laughs) I think you could guess that anyway. Yeah, yeah. The nature of their coherence is not systematic itself. In your, in your writing style, I mean, you get more into two pages than anybody, I think, theologically I've read. I mean, it's in, your, in the brief theology outline, I, I was consistently blown away at how you're able to, in a page and a half, summarize Israel's story, or two pages, and, and I didn't feel like it was reductive. <laughs> so, I mean, where did you get your gift for brevity with language? I think it's, your systematics is like that. A lot of your work is very... Well, it's partly sloth. <laughs> I had a college English teacher whose sole means of critique, he hit us right and right and right, was a blue pencil. He would eliminate half of what you'd written and show you how it was clearer that way. And I just got into the habit. Mm. Also, I think I was born with a prolixity, a passion for brevity. Now, which is the most suitable answer to your question? I really don't know. (laughs) Part of... Part uh, English professor, part Midwestern Lutheran, kind of. <laughs> yep. <laughs> mm. Now, you've done a lot of work on Karl Barth, but you've managed to not be, you don't seem like a Bardian. No, I'm not. Is, how did you uh, manage that? Well, I think that one appropriates one's predecessors in the long argument of theology, mostly not by continuing their work, but by p- choosing chunks. It's the fate of any systematic theologian to have his carefully cultivated system dismantled, <laughs> chopped up into bits, and swallowed whole in bits and pieces by successors. Mm. Mm. So I did to Bart, as I've done to Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther. I've appropriated what seemed to work for me and not worried about whether I was carrying on with somebody else's work. Like a theological vivisectionist. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned cannibalism. <laughs> you mentioned Luther, and we're my Calvinist friends used to say that they so envied Lutheran seminary professors because it's so easy to get students stirred up about Luther. <laughs> Harder so with Calvin. Calvin is so blasted dull. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, Calvin was not as interesting of a character for sure. I mean, you've written about politics and culture and ethics. What, what do you make as a theologian of, of the American political moment right now? I have a rather apocalyptic view of it. <laughs> Don't sugarcoat it for me. <laughs> <laughs> what, 
apocalyptic how? It may be the self-refutation of democracy. <laughs> You're not mincing words here. I like that. Well, Plato always said that, and exactly Hamlet agreed with Plato, Hamlet's version is your people, sir, is a great beast. <laughs> now, in the kingdom of God, there was absolute direct democracy. And it might have been that the American experiment in democracy was a sort of anticipation of the kingdom of God. But that's only if the faith is there to hold up the vision of the actual kingdom. Minus the faith, and that's what's happened. It's just a chaos. Do you think that, you know, T.S. Eliot, I think it's in notes toward an understanding of culture, says that you, a society can't exist without some spiritual animating force that, it, that even, even like, you know, the Soviet Union or something, they'll become a secular spiritual force, like a religion of the state. I mean, is that what's happening? We're losing our sort of spiritual animating force? Well, look, can you perceive that the American public, you, me, and everybody else, has any vision, shared vision of the common good? Not, not, yeah, I think that's fair to say <laughs> that, 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 that we don't, by and large. Without that, a democracy simply cannot work. By what standard are we supposed to, to love each other? Mm. I wish the good for you, you wish it for me. But if I have a different idea of what the good is, and you have a different idea of what the good is, all we're going to do is fight. Yeah. What contemporary theologians do you enjoy reading? Who are folks that you think are showing promise on the horizon? Adam Idle. There you go. Oh. There you go. I like that. You'll edit that part out. I oh, that's, I'm, that, that's, I'm, I'm putting that all over the place. Adam. Steve Wright, Chris Green, Blanche, Douglas Knight. Oh, okay. Okay. You know him? Yeah, I've heard of him. He's got a book with Erdman's. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, he wrote uh, The Eschatological uh, Economy or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've, I, it's, I'm, I can't think of the title, but yeah, he wrote on Irenaeus and Augustine, right? Like, oh. Yeah, I think I th- he's not writing theology anymore. He's a farmer. He's a farmer. Wow. He gave up doing theology in England. Why did he give it up? Because he couldn't earn a living. <laughs> That's a tragedy. That is a tragedy. Because he's, I liked his work. I thought a lot of it. Well, he, he was a pest for his supervisors, among whom I was only informally one. Because if you sent him, he submitted a draft, and he was such a fountain of ideas that if you didn't, if you gave him the draft back with a suggestion for and change, he simply wrote a whole new book. <laughs> so there are three versions, three books. <laughs> the one that was finally published, or two others that are just as good. <laughs> and unpublished. Someone told me a story that you went on like a retreat in Germany. Pardon? Somebody told me a story that you were at a retreat in Germany and Martin Heidegger showed up. Is that true? Yeah. What was that like? Well, you know, he was disgraced. And when it hit himself in the Black Forest, hmm. he would emerge from time to time to address his old students. This was a famous occasion on which he addressed the theologians among his old students, one of whom was Gunter Bornkamp at Heidelberg. Bornkamp snuck me in. I wasn't an old student. I wasn't famous. But he, he liked me. <laughs> and he snuck me in. So there I sat back in the corner listening to this to half the theologians of Germany discussing with, with their old atheist teacher. And it went back and forth in my head. One moment I would say to myself, my, isn't this marvelous to be here? The next moment I'd say, oh, bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you think that? Well, it's easy to think that Heidegger's kind of discourse. If you had any exposure to analytical philosophy, which I had, is just meaningless. Hmm. 
You, you, you mentioned that right the, towards the end of Brief Theology and Outline. Oh. That Heidegger is one of the Heidegger's sort of nihilism is the, is one of the things that really threatens the life of the church. Yeah. If you were giving advice to preachers today about you know in an increasingly secular culture about how to preach, what keeping first things first, what would your advice be? Tell the story of Israel and, Je- and the Israelite Jesus and the resurrection. Just tell the story. Do you think you hear enough of that, or what? I don't hear any of it. <laughs> That's tough. That's tough. Why, why do you think people don't do that, preaching-wise? I don't know. You think they don't have confidence that it, you know, it, it works or, or it's relevant? Or... Well, if you, it depends on what sets the agenda. Hmm. And the agenda of modern Protestantism has been that the world sets the agenda. So is the agenda set by the world a narrative? No. It's, it's a sort of series of moral exhortations. If you're... The other alternative is that the church sets the agenda. And in it, theologians of culture interpret the culture by the narrative about Christ. If you were going to tell the story of, you alluded to this a second ago, if you were going to tell the story of, of modern Protestant decline, how would you tell it? If somebody, if somebody said, okay, Chance, give me the, give me the short version of uh, how well, things went awry. Well, there are so many versions of that story of decline. My <laughs> version starts... The coming apart of the medieval synthesis, where natural knowledge and revelation came apart, and natural knowledge eventually took the sea. If it's what's natural to us, obviously it must be the criterion. <laughs> yeah. So eventually, natural theology devoured all of the, all of theology, hmm. and then it just kind of becomes secular after yeah. that. You go from sort of uh, theism to deism to uh, <laughs> to skepticism. <laughs> so, if you um, if you were giving advice to young to young theologians, maybe like I don't know Adam, <laughs> which maybe you do give him advice. But what's your what what is the Jensen uh, pearl of wisdom and advice for young theologians working today? Well, I'll give advice by my in the language of my own thinking. Tell the story, remembering that. Since it includes the resurrection, it's a story that opens the future and gives hope. You should never finish a sermon except with permissions. Since Christ lives, this is possible to you that you would never believe God. Say more about the permissions. When you want to, how, can you say a little more about how ending sermons and permissions? Well, say justice is a virtue. A sermon should end with, because Christ is risen. Just is a, justice is a possibility. You can work for it in hope. But not, and then you don't let the, the world decide what is justice. Hmm. The gospel does that. Jensen, hmm. it, it can be so hard to elaborate an account of justice on what we find in Scripture. It, I think, the difficulty is often moving from uh, what what guidance we find there to concrete particulars. Um, so. How is it, do you think that a theologian today can get from the gospel's account of justice um, to um, some kind of concrete guidance in the contemporary world? Well, in the Bible, justice is affirming with joy your role within the community, making the 
the contributions specific to your calling. It's a very platonic conception of justice. It reminds me of the Republic. Pardon? It reminds me of Plato's notion of justice in the Republic. That's probably no accident. Look, I don't mind borrowing from the, the, the religious philosophers. I'll chew them up just like my systematic predecessors. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not just a theological cannibal, but you're a philosophical one as well. Well, when I started teaching, I was supposed to teach both philosophy and, theology, and freshman theology. I taught philosophy, history of philosophy Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and freshman Bible Tuesday and Thursday. <laughs> I used to wander the campus trying to figure out what lever to pull. <laughs> to switch from teaching the one to the other. I finally decided there wasn't any lever. Hmm. Professor Jensen, thanks so much for, t- for taking some time to talk with me. I really, I've enjoyed it. Um, and uh, I've been a great admirer of your work for a number of years. So it's well, wonderful I'm to... I'm delighted to hear it. Yeah. And uh, thank you. You know, you, you, you write something and you throw it out there. And sometimes it comes back with an affirmation. We're all egotistical enough to be delighted. <laughs> well, well, then uh, take an egotistical moment and know that I find your work delightful. <laughs> so you, you. you have the right to be delighted. Thanks. Thank you. For those of you, I've done an experiment about my own grooming practices. This morning, I've not only showered and shaved, I actually have to run to the dentist right after this because I had a crown pop out and I have a huge gaping hole in my mouth. And so, and my dentist and I are friends, Dr. David Gardner, Rittenhouse Dentistry, the best dentist in Metro Philly. Uh, he's a wonderful guy. So I have to, I'm going to edit this podcast on the fly, on the train. And so right now I am in full stepping out regalia. I mean, sometimes when I shower and shave, I still would put on a casual outfit that I might not wear out in civil society. But Rittenhouse Square, it's sort of like, yeah, it's not quite Union Square, but it's, it's, it's Philly's little Manhattanish area. So he and I might socialize afterwards. So, I, so everybody, if you're listening and thinking about what my own grooming and haberdashery, what effect it has, this is this, you know, pretty like, this is as high end for me as it goes. <laughs> Just letting everybody know. I'm here with David and Sarah, as usual, and we have a new segment today. Uh, the Episcopal Church is breaking Sarah's heart. Is it, Sarah, how? If so, correct, and if so, how? It is. It is breaking my heart. And and I'll be real with you. I mean, I've put up with a lot of nonsense from the Episcopal Church over the years. I mean, a lot of nonsense. Like none of them seem to use or very few of them say the prayer for humble access anymore. Every time there's a diocesan event, no matter the diocese, no one seems to know how to organize childcare. Uh, the coffee's really bad. And I've hit my limit. Like I, in all seriousness, I can almost not talk about this without crying. I have had several moments this week where I thought I want to leave the Episcopal Church, which I'm not going to do because I'm married to an Episcopal priest and I'm an Episcopal priest and I love where I work and I love where I worship. 
But we have had not one, but two pieces come from prominent leaders in the Episcopal Church this week that have said to us, reconciliation with people who voted for Trump and specifically with Donald Trump may not be possible. And not not just leaders, but I'm talking about people who are ordained ministers of the gospel. One of one of whom is a bishop in the Episcopal Church. He is uh, his name is Sean Rowe, um, and he is out of the Diocese of Western Pennsylvania, Northwestern Pennsylvania. And then Gay Clark Jennings. Uh, and I'm not trying to call people out here. You can find these articles online and I suggest that you read them. And, and you know, in the comment section, if you find something redemptive, let me know. We encourage name naming here. Yeah, name names. Name names. Because I, I'm like, pe- For- <laughs> like, you start to tell me that reconciliation may not be possible. And I start to wonder if you're a minister of the gospel. I mean that in all seriousness, like it's very upsetting for me. I mean, one of, one of these people actually said, if we want to know what reconciliation looks like, we should look to the Old Testament prophets. And now, now that was Sean Rowe and brother, I'm just wondering here, have you read the Old Testament prophets? Like, is that really what reconciliation should look like for us? Like, I'm, I'm just, I'm so upset right now, you guys. Like, and again, like I love the Episcopal church, but y- you start taking away forgiveness. And, and the, and the other thing here, and, and you know, I'm going to try not to go on for too long, but when we say to to an entire denomination as leaders, when we say, well, these people who voted for this man, you know, aren't Christian. When we start to say, well, this is what, you know, we're big on the Jesus movement right now in the Episcopal Church. Well, this is what the Jesus movement looks like, and this is what it doesn't look like. I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, A, if you've ever reconciled yourself to your own sin, and B... If the ultimate goal in the Episcopal Church is to get down to one pure holy remnant, right? Is that is that the goal that 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 we can just make ourselves pure and pure and pure? You know, the great irony for me here, and I realize I'm stepping out in my own political mess, but the great irony for me here is, you know, we have Episcopal priests on a regular basis who have stood in front of abortion clinics with signs and said that this is God's work. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out where the lines are in the Episcopal Church right now. And it's freaking me out. So in rant, still an Episcopal priest, married to an Episcopal priest, love the Episcopal Church. But if one more leader out there, and I am trying not to say the word fool, but if one more leader out there writes another piece out of my denomination that says that reconciliation may not be possible, I'm going to start. I'm going to start a citizen's arrest for holy orders because I can't do this anymore. <laughs> ELCA, wake up. You have a, you have a recruit potential here. <laughs> One more leader and she's out. So, yeah, well, you know. it didn't, it reminds me, Sarah, of what, um, after the Charleston shootings, when, um, the ELCA was sort of talking about, the, about possible lit- liturgies for post, uh, you know, for people in mourning. And they said that the, the sort of absolution or the forgiveness of sins, I think, uh, the pronouncement was uh, optional. And uh, our friend Nadia wrote this kind of scathing thing. She said, you know, this is, I'm as horrified by this as anyone, but if it, the forgiveness of sins is not optional. It's like the all we have. Like what else? <laughs> that that's it. Right. It's, exactly. We might as well yeah. close up shop now if we're making that optional. Yeah. I mean, it, that's for me is like this is always the reassuring thing that God is God and we are not. Right. Because God's love and God's forgiveness is so overwhelmingly relentless that when I see statements like this, 
come from people who are as flawed and as sinful as I am. I get down on my knees and I thank God that God is God and I am not. Hmm. It's funny. I was talking with a Jewish friend yesterday who is a woman older than me and a woman of the left. I mean, unabashedly self-described. And she was asking me all about evangelicalism, what I know about the white working class, like, you know, given I grew up in a home that, that, you know, it, it wasn't we didn't, neither of my parents had much in the way of post high school education and things like that. So this is a Jewish woman that feels like the only hope moving forward, at least on a horizontal plane, is mutual understanding. And, mm-hmm. and, and this is a woman who's Jewish and, and rightly worried right now because of some of the anti-Semitic palpable feelings course, in, the yeah. air, in the air. So like, it's just interesting that the contrast between Jewish leftists and Episcopalian prophets. So, well, <laughs> I'm sure this segment will, it will not, it may not be the first, it's our first, but may not be the last given the state of North American Christianity. Moving on to the fact that progress isn't natural, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of just like, let's let's call a spade a spade. Um, the Atlantic this past week, I think it's actually in the, in the, um, in the magazine as well, Joel Mockier wrote an article under the title, Progress Isn't Natural. And um, it's actually a, a strong endorsement of progress, oddly enough, given that title. But uh, he says some things that I think are very interesting, especially given our current cultural backdrop. It says, the idea that humans should and could work consciously to make the world a better place for themselves and for generations to come is by and large one that emerged in the two centuries between Christopher Columbus and Isaac Newton. Why might people in the, in the past have been hesitant to embrace the idea of progress? The main argument against it was that it implies a disrespect of previous generations. The historian uh, Carl Becker noted in a classic work written in the 1930s, a philosopher could not grasp, capital P, could not grasp the modern idea of progress until he was willing willing to abandon ancestor worship until he analyzed away his inferiority complex toward the past and realized that his own generation was superior to any yet known. I mean, that's interesting. Sounds like a very uh, unapologetic, embrace of hubris. But moving on, uh, Mockier says, it was a turning point when intellectuals started to conceive of knowledge as cumulative. In the past, this has been questionable. Much ancient knowledge, after all, had been lost when manuscripts were destroyed. But after 1500, the printing press and the proliferation of libraries made such losses increasingly likely. So uh, people like um, uh, Pascal started thinking of... uh, knowledge as being this immortal human that's ever learning. Uh, Bernard de Fontenelle predicted that one day the members of his generation would themselves be ancients and it would be fair and reasonable for posterity to outdo them. I'm not sure that sure. So he was not, uh, he did not succumb to what we wrote about in the mental health issue, the end of history bias that is so um, uh, prominent today. Um, he goes on, and we're, we're getting to the meat here. He says, The increasing disrespect for ancient learning was paired with a conviction that human progress over the long haul was a desirable and feasible objective. But needless to say, different authors meant different things when they thought about progress. Some thought about moral improvement. Others thought about, about less tyrannical and more benevolent rulers. It became increasingly clear, however, that economic progress in terms of increased prosperity materially was a central part of the story. 
in addition to matters such as religious tolerance, equality before the law, and other human rights. By the 18th century, the idea of economic process progress had taken firm root. As the 18th century unfolded, it became something close to a consensus that science and technology were the engines of economic progress. And, you know, this is me speaking, but the um, progress as kind of like a... Uh, unquestioned dogma in the sermon I gave post election last week I, I, I tried to talk about is is life of victory march you know what we talked about last week or is it uh, you know a series of defeats punctuated by joy but ending in a, a personal apocalypse for everyone and it reminded me deeply of this incredible thing that Jonathan Franzen wrote because the problem is not so much that we that progress itself is bad, but that we, it is over. Um, we have too broad of an understanding of progress. This is what Franzen said. He said, "We have this notion in this country not only of endless economic growth, but of endless personal growth." I have a certain characterological antipathy to the notion that we're all getting better and better all the time. And it's so clearly belied by our experience. You may get better in certain ways for 10 years, but one day you wake up and although things are a little bit different, they're not a lot different. And I think if one can get more accustomed to, to that somewhat more tragic view of life, that people would think, oh yeah, we don't actually need to have a bigger and bigger house and a bigger and bigger car and more and more things in the house. There might be some way to think of the world in different terms so that it was less about, it was more about being and less about growing. More about being and less about growing. Now, I think he's describing a Christian point of view, whether he, he would actually call it that, uh, I don't know, but um, that's called retrograde often. Uh, but I think it also um, leads to love because you're not expecting people to constantly get better and better all the time. I have a really good friend who's goes to our church, who's in a Bible study that I, that I teach sometimes for the women. And she always brings in this Bible. I can't tell you guys what the translation is, but she was raised in the Southern Baptist church and, um, and it, it's her high school Bible from the sixties. And when we're, when we're studying passages, she will often look up and say, Oh my gosh, this is highlighted. And I have all these notes by it. And she says, and this is exactly what I think about it now. And it's always such a beautiful moment when that happens for us because it, it says that these are the things that have always brought her comfort. And these are the things that still concern her and that not much has changed, mm. which I, I, I don't know. I find, I find that really reassuring. I, I also kept thinking of, we, you know, I mentioned last week to you guys, we had just been to the World War II Museum um, in New Orleans, which was amazing. But I remember, I mean, I spent a lot of time around my grandmother. I spent a lot of time around people of that generation. And, and it wasn't, it was about their day-to-day -day lives. It wasn't about this, like, are we getting better? Are we progressing more kind of thing? So anyway, I mean, part of that is because I, I don't come from people, you know, I'm astonished that this, that they were talking about the shift happening in what, like the, the 16th and 17th century. Like, I don't, <laughs> my people in the 16th, 17th century were not having these conversations. But anyway, it's just interesting. The book, Carl Becker's book, The Heavenly City of the 18th Century Philosophers. I have two copies of that book, and I don't know why. And every time I organize my books, I always wonder why I have two copies of that book. Because it's a good book. It's not like one of my favorites. It's not, I mean, I like it, but I'm just saying, it's, I don't know why. So there you go. Uh, so if anybody wants a copy of that book that was referenced early in the article, I live in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. Look me up, and you can have one of my copies. And it's I, worth I'll reading. take uh, it. I'll take it. Yeah. Just like, yeah. I, I, you I guys can't have it. I just called it. I will mail it to you. You know, I, I think that it's interesting in the interview with Robert Jensen that you all just heard. It, one of the things he said that was one of the biggest setbacks in the history of the church, in his perspective, was the disillusion of the medieval synthesis. 
where, you know, faith and reason had kind of had a rapprochement and fit together and philosophy and theology were an integrated whole. I like, I'm sympathetic to that on one level, because what he's saying is that then, you know, once you break those apart, then natural reason separated from supernatural realities, you know, you just focus on the natural stuff and start doing natural theology. And then you just become a materialist and an empiricist in the worst sense. And yet there's something about, David, I'm thinking about your piece that you wrote about reality after the election. There's something to me that seems something about dissolutions of synthesis, syntheses, synthesi. I don't know what the mm. plural of the word is, but of things like synthesis in plural sometimes can be these, you know, I mean, the comforting thing in the Old Testament prophets is that, you know, you could read them all in a deuteronomistic fashion, right? As if the the messages choose life, uh, you know, it, it, and now Israel, you've chosen death and sin, uh, but get your act together and you can choose life again. But actually, Peter Lightheart says the message is much more gospel-centered than that. The message is, Israel, you've sinned and to sin is to die. Now put your faith in the God who can raise the dead. And, and for Jensen, the whole question of the Bible is, theologically, is the answer for humanity to the question raised in Ezekiel, can these bones live? Mm-hmm. And so I think that, that hope is very different than optimism, right? And so sometimes things do change and progress, uh, but the more they change, sometimes, you know, the more they stay the same, I suppose. So I don't know. That was a wow. series of antinomies or something like that. But uh, yeah, I'm skeptical about skepticism on on people that are progress files, uh, progressive files, or progressive haters. Like I just think history is messier than we give it credit for. A, a blind faith in progress, I think, leads you to filter all of your experiences through that lens and your experience of other people's, but most importantly of yourself. Because if you have that 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 uh, uh, view of history, you're going to also project it onto yourself. And so you're going to have to adopt a sense of yourself getting better and better as the world gets better and better and more and more tolerant and full of, you know, harmony. And so you end up um, basically lying. And I think that you can't love another person or be loved if you're having to construct this, you know, to use the modern parlance, if you're having to construct a narrative all the time in which the the ideal of progress is um, uh, unencumbered. Guys, I don't want to have a whole episode where I complain about the Episcopal Church, but... <laughs> but yeah, maybe, um, maybe I do. But part of me wonders if this, if this like total appalled thing that's happened since the election is because the church, not unlike the rest of humanity, um, thought it had made all this progress, right? Thought that like we were, we had arrived at some state of utopia where we had all these things figured out where racism wasn't an issue and sexism wasn't an issue. And, you know, and, 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 and we had defined progress on these very specific terms for ourselves in terms of who was going to be elected and how things were going to go. And, 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 you know, it's, it's so much undealt with sin. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, (laughs) It also, I just have to name this and feel free to cut it, Scott, but it's ironic to me that we didn't get a statement like this out of a bishop from Mississippi, right? Like we're not getting these statements from people who actually encounter like racism on a regular basis, who actually know, right, that not much progress has been made, like who understand systemically 
how long we've had these problems and how undealt with they are. We're getting them from bishops who don't see this stuff, who are shocked. They should watch right? that. Uh, and who are saying, oh, we can't reconcile. We all need to sit down and watch um, that uh, Dave Chappelle skit on Saturday Night Live of where he's like, this is the worst thing that's ever so happened in the history of our country. And Chappelle's so like, good. the worst thing? <laughs> really? <laughs> the, well, of course she lost Kentucky. All the racists live there. All of them live in all Kentucky. <laughs> Only in Kentucky. Let me tell you. (laughs) Let me tell you where there is uh, indubitable progress. The iPhone Seven Plus. I've become a voluntary Instagram husband. That camera is phenomenal. As I sympathize with a lot of what Sarah's saying, obviously, and I, I really, um, she sent me some of those pieces, and they, they, they got my blood boiling as well. But let me just say, in defense of uh, my own diocese, and I'm not an ordained person, and I don't have. You know, I've got my own feelings about the Episcopal Church. However, our bishops uh, did a video the day after the election where they, they've been talking about Ministry of Reconciliation for a long time. And like our bishops got this great relationship with one of the breakaway churches. And um, they didn't pull their punches when it came to what reconciliation might look like after this. They didn't say it's selective. It's only for a sort of a glamorized uh, part of society. And I was I, in that moment, I just found it a deeply moving that they, again, that they, they really went there with the reconciliation line, which sometimes feels hollow and sometimes feels like a little bit, you, you talk about the ministry of reconciliation and you talk about Corinthians, but you don't read the part about, you know, he who was, you know, who knew no sin became like, that's right there with the rest of it. It's all this blood mm-hmm. atonement stuff. And so how do you talk about, mm-hmm. you know, anyway, our bishops, uh, who are total, you know, um, you know, episcopates or whatever you want to, however you want to say, they really um, put their money where their mouth was. And I, I found that to be deeply encouraging. So uh, the Episcopal Church is, 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 is like any church, um, uh, though maybe not like any church, but it's pretty, it's, they're, 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 <laughs> they're different experiences the people have. Change, the more they stay the same, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, just me, or does anybody see the new all right let's talk about family systems uh moving on we're uh as we're talking about the revolutionary parenting insight that will help your love life now who in their right mind wouldn't be interested in that and it turns out it's almost like a rephrasing of what bonnie poon uh zal my sister-in-law wrote in the mockingbird magazine about mental health issue about attachment theory. It's uh, This is from Science of Us, that site that we plunder pretty much every week from New York Magazine. And uh, it's, it's they, the writers say, one of the fundamental and perhaps most personally useful findings within the Western psychological tradition is what's called attachment theory. You can see it in Sigmund Freud and his projective hypothesis. Basically, um, when as babies, when what's going on in a situation is unclear, your brain generates a structure and projects it out into the world, providing a framework for understanding. And so everybody, uh, to at least some extent, superimposes their childhood experiences of love or lack thereof onto their adult relationships. 
So if a parent struggles with autonomy, with like allowing a child to explore the world on their own, then that child will struggle with autonomy. They'll feel compelled to always cling close to mom and then later on to whoever their partner turns out to be. If a caregiver is anxious about support, as in providing a steady presence when emotions get overwhelming, then by the time the kid turns one, before they even grasp language, they've learned not to go to their parent for soothing uh, or for sorting through difficult feelings and the same thing that you see this play out uh, with people when they're older. Now, obviously not in every case, and there's a tremendous amount of hope held out in this piece. Um, but, uh, you know, I was so, it's, it's such an interesting article because it, 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 it went from law to gospel very quickly. Uh, for example, if a two-year-old is playing, they'll look back about every six seconds and see if the caregiver is available to see if they're present in a psychological sense. But if the caregiver thinks their job is over and they take out their phone and start scrolling through Instagram, it tells the child that they need to be right next to them in order to make mom or dad available. Kids, empathetic little sponges that they are, can pick up on the anxiety that parents have about being perfect. Children can read between the lines and they'd much rather be in a relationship with a parent who makes mistakes and is open to working on where they struggle versus a parent who is doing everything possible to never make a mistake. Now, this is what uh, Bonnie talks about attachment theory and how essentially our earliest experiences of love play into not just our relationships with our future spouses and our, ch- and our future children, but also in a relationship with God, that if you had an insecure attachment to a parent, you will have an insecure attachment. You project an insecure attachment to God. You'll have a harder time believing that God loves you unconditionally, but and, and vice versa. Uh, but with, where they do end is they say that it's not you're not sort of predetermined there to be unhappy if you had an unhappy childhood. There are ways to sort of uh, befriend yourself or to be reparented. I was talking to someone this past week who really did have a bad experience growing up with a uh, with his uh, his mother. He's still in therapy about it. He who he felt he was just this uh, you know accessory to and never really she never really met his need. It was narcissistic parenting. And but he felt when he married his wife, her parents were so sweet and loving they they kind of reparented him. And the extent to which he's able to be a loving spouse and not look to his wife to be his mother uh is a lot of the extent to which he um has been reparented and he's praises God for that. So it's by no means a hopeless situation. And of course we we bring faith in God as as that ultimate relationship in which we're reparented into the equation. But uh that's where my mind went with it. What what it, Scott? What what do you think? As I was reading the article, some for some reason I was drawn to. There's a guy, a theologian, Brian Garish, who's sort of the best, one of the best Calvin and Schleiermacher scholars of the 20th century. And there's a book of his sermons called The Pilgrim Road. And the sermon in the sermon called Sin, he says, you know, imagine this dining room in a sort of well-to-do suburban English household. There's this kind of, you know, dinner party, cocktail hour or something. And there's a, an arresting knock at the door. And this police inspector reports that there's this uh, girl who um, winds up dead. It, it, this is a sort of well-to-do society party. And what they find out is that she winds up killed. I think she was involved in prostitution or something. Her parents died. She was working in a factory. There was opium things or something along those lines involved. And everyone in the room touched her story, her story some way. Like one of the guys in the room slept with her a few times, strung her on, you know, in a vulnerable moment and sort of just, you know, shoot her away. And somebody else owned the factory that fired her, you know, this orphan and all the, and then Garish says there was nothing left at all for the wretched girl soon to become a mother. What could she have done once her child was born? There was nothing left for her except 
the disinfectant. So she killed herself with a disinfectant. Um, the story, as many of you will have recognized, comes from J.B. Priestley's play, An Inspector Calls. You may not think it's a very good play, too many coincidences, but it has a very good moral. I give it in Priestley's own words, put into the mouth of the inspector. There are millions and millions and millions of Eva Smiths and John Smiths with their lives, their hopes and fears, their suffering and chance of happiness, all intertwined with our lives. What we think and say and do, we are members of one body. We are responsible for one another. And I just think about, like, for some reason, the mystery of providence, God chose to make the womb for human being broken human beings. <laughs> that, that every uh. human being is parented by broken, fallen, faltering, fragile human beings. And so on some level, I think coming to human maturity involves reconciling with the way you've been sinned against and the way you victimize others in light of it as you've been victimized and vice versa. So I think on some level, that's just right. When I read it, I was just thinking how striking talk about the image of, image of God that's scariest to them. And the scariest to me is God is Woody Allen. I mean, I, I thought this was a good story for you. I mean, these, conf- you know, so I think maybe there's a redemptive Woody Allen-ness to the human condition. Well, two things come to mind. First of all, Anne Lamont once wrote something like, for many of us, we've got to find mothers and fathers and other people. And I think even if you had a good mom and dad, I think that's a that's great advice for anyone. Because um, to expect a parent to serve all of these different roles per- perfectly or even really well is not going to happen, right? We're flawed people. So I think that's good advice for anyone. Uh, I had a, a very good friend who's a therapist once say to me that he would be out of business if parents learn to say two words, which is I'm sorry. He said, I'd be out of business. If parents said those words to their children, there would be no need for therapy. And I remember that. And I think of that a lot uh, with with my children. Sometimes I worry that like our son will just because he's the one, you know, that's old, old enough now to sort of remember like he's just going to have this like vision of me as this neurotic woman who apologizes a lot and goes to church all the time. And, you know, I'm okay with that. Like, that's where we are. Like, that's who I am. But like, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. It's really important. Well, that kind of, uh, you know, that kind of bleeds into the final piece, which is a uh, interview that uh, the local sort of paper here, the weekly newspaper in Charlottesville did with Lulu Miller, who's one of the co-hosts of Invisibilia, which is basically, I think we can all say it's sort of our favorite podcast that we call, I call it the Grace and Practice podcast. And uh, they talked to Lulu about her history and she was a woodworker who didn't like, grew up not liking NPR. And then she ended up sort of interning for Radiolab and doing this and that and the other. And all of a sudden she's hosting uh, this incredible show. And this is, this is what, what struck me as both the uh, personally relevant and nationally relevant and also just eternally relevant is um, she said, Lou said, she's often amazed at the things people reveal about themselves in an interview. It's a reminder that when you're vulnerable, 
quote, when you do show your worst side, that can be an act of humanity because it shows everyone that everybody else is so deeply imperfect. That can be such a gift because sometimes people put up such a front. I could, I would t- just substitute the word humanity for grace or at least double it. Uh, and then she says, sort of asking what, what, what tips people have, uh, for, she has for, for those who are interested in such things. She says, really listen, really show someone you're with them. Sometimes people are almost shocked when they're very closely listened to. Now, I, I, I grew up in a house with a mother who's teaching the sort of theology of listening for years and years and years, and uh, it never really sunk in. <laughs> I never really listened. But it, uh, you know, now that I'm older and I've gotten, I've read uh, Anne Long's book called Listening, which is just such a profound book, um, this idea that people are almost shocked when they're closely listened to, when someone's not waiting to identify or to share their own experience or to speak or to fix or uh, even to sort of shut it down with a box of tissues or something. When someone is really listened to, it is um, a subversive act. I mean, it's almost, it's shocking, it's political, it's life-changing, and it is in itself an act of grace because you're allowing something to be said um, without um, imposing a judgment on it which would be the law, uh, to, to just allow something to be give, given the, the grace to say something, I think is um, sort of the essence of uh, Christian ministry. It's not the only part, but it, it, it really is profound. And she's experienced as she talks about uh, interviewing an, old, an older man who um, talks about sort of being alone with his subconscious and sort of all these incredible things coming out when you really let someone talk, but not just let them talk when you actually listen to them. And, you know, um, it's convicting. It's also comforting. I mean, when was the last time you felt truly listened to? Um, and uh, it also reminded me a little bit of, uh, frankly, of our man, Scott Jones, who I think is an interviewer, uh, does this. And you you all of a sudden get taken somewhere in an interview. That you're like, holy moly. I'm glad that was Scott doing it, not me, because he was actually listening. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I agree 100%. Yeah. 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 She's just that um, reporting for radio is this profession where you still get to be an explorer and go into all these spaces you wouldn't otherwise have access. I love she said that she, he said she might have traded her dad's computer paper for a microphone, but she's still sledding. And there, there's something about sound. Like, like video did not kill the radio star. And Invisibilia is, I, I couldn't say enough good about it. And I often have found myself listening to it crying uh, uncontrollably. Uh, because the hum- I love what you said about when you said about being human and grace and, you know, your dad on the uh, anniversary episode said, said, you know, I think of Martin Luther's uh, justified and sinner as my translation loved and human. <laughs> and I think that, that there's just nothing more human than that podcast. I mean, it, it's, it has a way it, it, it blends in. I think, you know, it's very hard to, do a narrative podcast and also a podcast that is almost like the form of an essay about the human condition because they tend to, the, the, the elements tend to, there's something about them that could, it's like a martini with the wrong mix of vermouth that could go really awry, but they have the right blend. And it's just, I find every one of the episodes they've done is a virtuoso effort. So congratulations to Lulu Miller and all her success. And my friends, we've said it all. 
What else can we do? I mean, I can always complain more, but yeah, I guess we said it all. <laughs> Just listen, yeah, we've said, exactly. Friends, I hope someone listens to you this week, which because you're right, David, it's a wonderful experience to be heard. See you next week. Thanks for listening to The Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please pass along to friends via social media. Maybe even cruise over to iTunes, give us a rating, and write a review. We exist because of the generosity, enthusiasm, and support of you, our listeners and readers. For that, we are forever grateful. The podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by my associate, David Peterson. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend.